This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. John's Gospel, chapter 17. John's Gospel, chapter 17. And we'll read this together, even though it's the whole chapter, but it's, it's all contained in the one prayer. This is the great prayer of Jesus. Verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is life eternal, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you, for I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. I pray for them, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name, those whom you gave me, I have kept. None of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have also kept them into, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared them 
to them your name, and I will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. Herbert Lockyer said that of the Bible records 650 definite prayers, of which no less than 450 have recorded answers. And so that's a good encouragement to pray, is it not? Amen. Some of these uh, prayers are very powerful. Some are very poignant. Some are prophetic. Some are for needs to be met, for bodies to be healed. Some are intercessory prayer for others. Some are for wisdom, for guidance, for mercy, for protection, and a, and a host of many other things. And of the 19 or so times that's mentioned in the Gospels that Jesus prayed, only here in John 17 do we have recorded the full transcript of one of Christ's prayers. Remember that Jesus often spent many nights in prayer, but only here do we find the full transcript of this one particular prayer. This is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in Scripture. And so decades later, when John was an old man, when he wrote his gospel, the Holy Spirit brought back to his remembrance every word of Christ's prayer Amen. that night. Verbatim. Every single word is here. And so that means then that we can be sure that if the Holy Spirit reminded John and John was there and heard it in person, that must mean that God wants us to read this prayer, study this prayer, think about this prayer often, meditate upon it and digest it and learn from it. This prayer reveals Christ's deepest longings, his heartfelt desires. The thing that he wanted above all things is contained within this prayer. Abraham and Moses and Elijah and Elisha and Daniel and David were all great men of prayer. And God moved heaven and earth because of their prayers, did amazing things, but none of their prayers comes close to matching this magnificent, majestic prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is holy ground. This is burning bush territory. And so we should be paying very close attention to this prayer. And neither my feeble attempt or others who are much more knowledgeable than I am could ever fully convey the depth and the breadth and the height and the profundity of this single prayer. Some of the old Puritan preachers of old, some of them wrote about this prayer. They wrote 400 pages and 500 pages and 700 pages, some of them wrote, on this one prayer alone. And so it's a big task, but I, I, I will do what I can do this morning to try to convey something of the feeling of this prayer that Jesus prayed. Now understand, first of all, the setting for this prayer. 
This was literally one hour before Jesus would be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Literally one hour before Judas would kiss Jesus on the cheek and betray him. Just as an aside, somebody said that Judas kissed the door of heaven, but he never entered in. At three o'clock the very next afternoon, Jesus would be crucified and he'd be dead hanging on a tree. So that's the context of this powerful prayer. Imagine if you could go back 2,000 years and you're with those disciples listening. They were within earshot of this prayer. They heard every word. And imagine if we could go back and stand among them and listen to the words that he prayed and the inflection on his voice and the passion of his heart and the pulse of his desires. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be exciting to be standing there hearing that, listening how he actually physically prayed that prayer? But of course we can't go back, obviously. But the good thing is that we have it here in Holy Writ, exactly as he prayed it. And if we read it slowly and attentively and often, then perhaps we'll catch a glimpse of his heart in this prayer. The prayer can easily be divided into three parts. Verse 1 to 5, Jesus first prays for himself told the Father that his work on earth was done. Verse 6 to 19, then he prayed for his disciples that the Father would keep them in his absence and sanctify them. And in verse 20 to 26, lastly, he prayed for you and he prayed for me that all and all the church that we be united in one and that one day we would see him in all his glory that was what he prayed. And so let's begin then to eavesdrop, as it were, on this great prayer of Jesus. And hear what he's saying to the Father. First of all, in verse 1, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. Now, in praying for himself here, Jesus is not being selfish. Jesus was the most selfless person that ever walked the face of this earth. The thing that consumed Christ was to glorify his Father. And everything he said and everything he'd done and every miracle he performed and every attitude he showed, all of it was to glorify the Father in heaven. All of it. And so, he's not being selfish here because what he's saying is, Father, I want you to glorify me, knowing what he was going to go through, glorify me that it may glorify you. That what I'm about to do, if you glorify me in this, this will glorify you. And so even knowing what he's going to go through, he's still wanting this, above all things, to glorify 
the Father in heaven. And so, every time that Jesus got any glory, it reflected back to the Father. And that should be good for us too. That any little bit of glory that man wants to give any of us should be reflected back to the Father. I know I told you a couple of times, but the little children in the Ukrainian church that we go to, they taught them in Sunday school, if anybody compliments you, say, all glory to God. And so if you say to any of those children, you've got beautiful eyes that say, all glory to God. <laughs> Slava Bogo. Praise the Lord. And so, it's a good attitude, isn't it? Because there's a tendency within all of our human nature to want to take the glory to ourselves. And Jesus was never like that. Who could have received much glory, and who did receive much glory, but always wanted to reflect it back from the Father. And nothing, absolutely nothing, that he'd ever done up to this point, every miracle, every word that he spoke, every deed that he'd done, nothing is going to compare with what he's about to do now to give God glory. This would be the greatest act of glorifying God that has ever been done. And that's what Jesus is praying. This will glorify you, Father. And so the cross would be an everlasting symbol then of the glory of God. Fanai, you get a tickly cough, so I'm going to give you that bottle of water. That's Clifford's bottle, but you're getting it today. In verse 2, he said, As you have given him authority over all flesh, the first Adam, God gave him authority, dominion over all flesh, over every bird that flew, every fish that swam, every creature that crept upon the face of the earth. He had all power and all dominion over all of that, even gave all the animals their names. But through sin, we know that he lost that authority. He lost that dominion. But whenever the second man, the last Adam came, the Lord Jesus Christ, he had all of that authority and all of that power and all dominion over all flesh. Hallelujah. Whenever he fasted in those 40 days in the wilderness, the Bible says he was with the wild beasts, but not one was able to touch him. Not one. We know that Whenever he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, the colt, the fold of an ass that had never been broken, never been tamed, never been ridden on, but he did. And it never bucked him off. It just kept calmly going into Jerusalem. And so he was able to cause those fish to come and to hit the nets of the disciples. He was able to cause one fish to go down to the bottom of that lake and pick up that coin to pay Peter's temple tax. He had all power and all authority over all flesh. But more than that, not just the created life around, but over men. 
Do you remember whenever they wanted these detractors? Remember they wanted, they took him to the brow of the hill. They wanted them to throw him over the cliff and kill him. And what happened? He just passed through in the midst and they couldn't do a thing. Couldn't do a thing. No man could take him without his consent. No man could touch him unless and until he allowed it. He had such power and authority. Whenever he stood before Pilate, do you remember what Pilate says? Do you not know that I have power to take your life? And legally, he had the power of the sword, the Roman power of the sword. And Jesus looked him in the eye and calmly says, you would have no power except it's been given you. In other words, no one can touch me till my time comes. And the only way you can touch me, Mr. Pilate, is because it will be allowed. Otherwise you can't. As you have given him authority over all flesh. Notice he says, Father, the hour has come. There was times in the past, like at the wedding feast of Cana, when his mother said about the need that was there, he says, this is not my hour. My hour has not yet come. There was other occasions in Scripture where he said those very words, my hour has not yet come. It's not my time. Nobody can touch me before the time. But now he's saying, Father, the hour has come. And it was literally one hour before he was betrayed by Judas. So he knew for sure this is it. All this 33 years on earth, this is my time to go to the cross. The hour has come. Imagine praying this prayer, knowing that within hours, he would be so cruelly and brutally treated by men. Knowing that his disciples would run and scatter for their very lives. Knowing all of that, yet he prays this wonderful, wonderful prayer. As you have given authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. The age-old argument of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility comes into play here. It is too large a subject to deal with right now in the middle of this prayer. This has taxed the minds of the greatest theologians for millennia. Some of the greatest preachers on earth have differed in their view of this. And so it's too big a subject for us to deal with here and now. But let us agree on this one thing at least, that the Son of God, that the Son has given that the Son has given eternal life to as many as the Father has given him. Jesus said in John 6, 44, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is a mystery, how all of this works. But it does work. 
and we believe it by faith. Now consider this thought for a moment. We are sure and we're certain that the Father gave Jesus to us as a gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We're also certain and also assured that the Son has given us eternal life as a gift. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. But do we ever stop and consider that we are the Father's gift to the Son? We are the Father's gift to the Son. Seven times in this prayer, verse 2, twice in verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 12, 24, he says, those you have given me. Speaking of those disciples and also speaking of us through them. Those you have given me, you are God's gift to his son. We didn't merit it, we didn't earn it, we don't deserve it, can't understand why, but there you have it in Scripture. And we receive that by faith, that we are God's gift to his son. His son had everything. His son had the whole of heaven at his disposal. And what does the father do? He gives them us as a gift. Absolutely nothing in this world is more important to Christ than you are. Nothing. Nothing in heaven, no angel, no cherubim, no seraphim, not the ones who cry, holy, 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 holy is the Lord night and day around the throne. None of them put them all together and they're not worth to Christ, one of you. Because he didn't die for them. He didn't go to a cross and shed his blood for them. He went to a cross to die for me and for you. Can't understand why he did, but he did. Didn't deserve it, but by his grace and love and mercy he did. In Matthew 13, in that parable, the pearl of great price, tells of the merchant man going out, finding that pearl and selling all that he had to buy that pearl of great price. And we have done that parable a great disservice. Not wanting to appear as if we're something. We said that Christ is a pearl of great price. But wait a minute. We didn't sell all we had to go and find him. He, in a sense, sold all he had to find us, to receive us, to accept us. It cost him a great price to receive us. Don't deserve it. But he paid the price at great cost to himself and to the Father. In verse 3, he says, And this is eternal life 
that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The reality is we cannot know God truly except we know Christ first. There's lots of people and you said, do you believe in God? Oh, I believe in God. I know there's a God. Time to time I pray to God. Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you given your life to him? Do you love him and serve him? Hmm. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Ah, well, I'm not too sure about that. Uh, he certainly was a good man, and, and he, some say he was a great prophet, a wonderful exemplar, lived a great life, showed us great examples, but hmm, the Son of God, God made flesh, God coming in the virgin's womb, Ah, not too sure about that. Do you know that there's many vicars and bishops in the Church of England today, and there's others in other denominations, who do not believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead, that he was born of a virgin womb? They don't believe that. It's a fairy tale to them. It's not literal to them. Some of them doesn't even believe that Jesus is literally the Son of God. And sad to say, some doesn't even believe in God at all. And they preach behind a pulpit. If we're ever truly going to know God the Father, we need to know God the Son. We need to know God the Son. And this is what Jesus is praying, that men would come to know him so they could know his Father. Jesus came and revealed the Father to those disciples. And he desperately tried to reveal the Father to the world. Remember Philip said to Jesus, Jesus was going to go away. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it will be sufficient. We'll, we'll be happy if you show us the Father. And Jesus looked at him and said, Philip, if I could just slightly paraphrase, Philip, have I been with you such a long time and you haven't yet seen the Father? You've watched me. You've seen my works. You've heard my words. These are the Father's works. These are the Father's words. I and the Father are one. So why are you saying, show us the Father? Do you not see the Father in me? The Father in him was so one, not that he was the Father, he's not saying that, but everything about him demonstrated the nature and the character of the Father. You know, there's a big argument today that goes on about the God of the Old Testament and then Jesus of the New Testament, as if as if there's a big difference. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. That should end all arguments there, but... And so, 
he goes on to say, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, he hasn't yet gone to the cross. He's close. He's only a few, literally a few hours away. But he's saying here, I've finished the work. In other words, nothing and no one in heaven and earth or under the earth is going to stop him going to the cross. As far as he was concerned, in his mind, it's already done. He knew he would have to go through hell on earth. But he was so adamant and so sure, he said, it's finished. Yes, on the cross, he would cry those three words, it is finished. Tetelestai, it's one word, it is finished. Tetelestai, the price, price is paid in full. But even before it happened, it was as good as done in his mind. Just like when Abraham lifted a knife to slay his son, it was as good as done. Only Jesus would have to go through it literally. The issue of the cross was so settled in his heart, nothing could stop it. He was going to go to that cross. Then he says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What glory is he talking about here? Because he mentions glory a couple of times. He's talking about his pre-incarnate glory before he became incarnated in human flesh. The glory he had with the Father before he came to the earth. And what glory that must have been. What glory that must have been. Now you have to understand that when Jesus came to earth, he never laid aside his deity But he laid aside that pre-incarnate glory. That's what he laid aside in his humanity. Now there were a few moments here and there when they got a little glimpse of his glory. Very, very, very briefly. Probably John, in his vision in the Isle of Patmos, you see in Revelation, where he sees a vision of Christ standing in the midst of the seven churches where his feet are like burnished brass his hair is white as wool great golden girdle the glory of God shining that's probably as close as anybody has ever seen the glory of Christ but he knows what he had before he came he laid aside and he wants that back he wants that glory that he had with the father away back in that dateless past he wants that to enshroud him again while he was on earth someone said He was so much like God, it was as though he wasn't man. And he was so much like man, it was as though he wasn't God. Because he was the God-man. Deity and humanity coalescing 
into one. And he's still the God-man. The truth of it is, no man has fully seen Christ in his full, resplendent, ineffable glory. But he's praying that you and I will see him in the God. One day, you and I will see him in all of his resplendent glory. The glory that he had with the Father before the world began. Huh. And that's what he's praying for. He's been on this earth for 33 years. He's suffered the indignity of men, the abuse. Even his own brothers and sisters did not believe that he was the Son of God until after the resurrection. So much was veiled from human sight. But the day would come and he was praying for it, that veil would be removed. And that glory would be upon him. Then he said in verse 6, by the way, we're not going to go through all of this this morning. Just to put you at your ease. I'll have to return to it tonight. And so the second part of this prayer of those three divisions I gave you, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world, and they have kept your word. Now, whenever last week we looked at Matthew 6 and the Our Father prayer, the model prayer that he taught his disciples to pray, and part of that we mentioned some of the great names that have been given to God. Those composite names, those compound names, prefixed by Jehovah, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Rophika, the Lord our healer. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is present. Jehovah Rohi, the Lord our shepherd, and so forth. Many, many, many of those names. And we said that all of those names depict some of the character and the nature of God. And Jesus, one of, the, one of the great names in the Old Testament that we never really mentioned last week is I Am. Whenever Moses said to God, when I go to Pharaoh, when I go to my people before I go to Pharaoh, who can I say sent me? Tell them I Am sent you. I Am that I Am. So when Jesus used the, the term I am, I am the bread of life, I am the water of life, I am the light of life, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He was showing the very nature and character of God through him, revealing, manifesting God the Father through his words, through his actions, through his deeds. But the word that Jesus used the most was the word Father. And we said last week at the Our Father prayer, 
how radical that was for the disciples. Every Jew knew that God was the father of the nation. But the psalmist, David, the sons of Korah who wrote some of the psalms, Asaph who wrote some of the psalms, all of the prophets, all of the priests, none of them call God Father the way Jesus does here. The whole fatherhood of God regarding us as people was not something they were accustomed to. But Jesus introduces this whole concept of God Almighty being our Heavenly Father. Abba, Father, he used the term, that intimate, personal, family relationship term. In John's Gospel, the word Father is mentioned 122 times. And Jesus, over and over and over again, even in this prayer, uses the term Father. And you can count the many times he uses it. It's a lot. And so when he says, I've manifested your name, every time he, he said, I am, he was manifesting God's name. Every time he said, Father, here was a new concept for them to grasp that Almighty God is your heavenly Father. My father is your father. <laughs> Remember, he's just about to die. He's about to go to the cross. And so before he does, this is sort of the last things he's trying to get into their mind and into their heart because he knows he's going to be away. Twice in verse 6, Jesus prays, and states that we are God's gift to him. Seven times in all, he says that in this prayer. That being the case, he wants them to know that the one who owns us is our Father. <clears throat> Verse 8, 7 and 8. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I come forth from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. Now this is a remarkable statement. Remarkable. Of all the people in Israel, during those 33 years, particularly the last three years, that heard Jesus speak that saw Jesus' miracles. Out of all of that, very few, just a handful believed that he was literally God's son. I said a moment ago, not even his brothers and sisters believed that. And they lived with him for 30 years. The religious rulers certainly did not believe it, by and large. Some of them eventually came, but by and large they didn't. The governing authorities did not believe it. The philosophers, 
the academics, the intelligentsia of the day, none of them believed that he was the Son of God. All of them except these poor, ignorant, unlearned, unrabbinically trained fishermen. They believed in a simple, unsophisticated way, they believed that Jesus was the Son of God. It took a while for them to catch on, but eventually they did. But think out of all the multitudes. Such a small number out of all that heard him. Only after he died, he rose again. He appeared for 40 days. He went back to the Father. And after all of that, only 120 people in the whole nation gathered in the upper room. <laughs> can you imagine for a minute, can you imagine if, if God raised up a man in Ireland who had a mighty ministry, healing the sick, raising the dead, feeding multitudes miraculously, walking on water, going through every town, every city, every village, every hamlet in all of Ireland. At the end of three years, decided to start a church. Do you think only 120 people would turn up? I think they couldn't build a big enough building to fit everybody in. But only 120 turned up. Nothing much has changed today. How much of this world believes that Jesus is the Son of God? How many philosophers? How many academics? How many scientists? How many religious rulers? Hmm. But thank God, some do. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll close with this this morning. Verse 18, 1 Corinthians 1, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And that still holds true today. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. But it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Listen. Men will never understand God in their own wisdom. The wisdom of this world cannot understand God. In fact, it's foolishness to God. Only God's wisdom can reveal him truly 
and reveal his son to us. This is what Paul is saying. The philosophers, the so-called wise, where are they? You hear sometimes the so-called wise on television pontificating about religious matters, and they haven't got a clue. It's the wisdom of this world that they're applying, and they don't get it. They can't see it. And God has made it so, Paul says. Why? So that only, only God can reveal himself. That's why he left his Holy Spirit, to show us Christ, to show us the Father. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, through its own wisdom, did not know God. But it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews require a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, to the religious people, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, to the philosophers, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, <laughs> and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so Jesus, in this wonderful prayer, he's praying for those who believe that he is the sent one. And we believe today, not by our own wisdom, not by our own knowledge, not by our own understanding, but because God has opened our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see the truth. And we have embraced it. Now Jesus is praying right now for his disciples in this part of this prayer. And there's more to say about them. But then he goes on to finish praying about you and praying about me. And that's the exciting part. He didn't leave us out. <laughs> he saw us coming way down the road. He saw us coming. Glory to his name. Chosen by God. <laughs> and he prays for us. And it's wonderful what he prays for us. And that's what I want to return to tonight. What a wonderful Savior. What a fantastic prayer that the Holy Spirit has recorded for us to read. Do you know the, the wonderful thing about this prayer is, you know, you could read that this week and you could go back in a month's time and read it again and see things in it you never saw before. The prayers of Jesus. You ought to pray, you ought to read the prayers in the scriptures. I mean, there's two fantastic prayers of Paul in Ephesians. There's other prayers of the prophets. You, you ought to read their prayers because when you read their prayers, you get something of their heart coming through and it encourages us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that we are able in this 21st century to read this wonderful prayer that you prayed. And we thank you that you prayed this prayer because you included us in it. And we bless you for that. The old song says, when he was on the cross, we were on his mind. And Lord, whenever you were about to face the most horrific time,
time in your life, we were on your mind. <clears throat> you were praying for us. And we bless you and we thank you for that. So Lord, open our eyes to these truths. Encourage us. Strengthen us. Inspire us. And we'll give you thanks. And we'll give you praise and honor. For you alone are worthy. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information www.mpc.org.uk